BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is filmmaker extraordinaire, Avi Fedegreen. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, but this has been years in the making. I'm very excited. It is. I'm, I was trying to think back. When did, did we first meet? 2015, I'm going to guess. It was, it was my first can. We met outside that, that bar where everybody gets their wallet stolen. Um, um, Ten years in, I've still not had mine stolen, Avi. So I'm, I'm, I must be, I must look poor. Yeah, I didn't have mine stolen either. But what's that one where everybody stands outside the that pet, time place? The 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 pet the, the petty majestic. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we met there, uh, drank a few beers, mm-hmm. got to know one another, um, and um, decided that we wanted to find a way to make a movie together at, at the end of the night. And then we just kept um, hanging out to at the scandinavian parties and wearing helmets with uh horns on it and things like that and talking film yeah because our mutual friend justin just mcconnell he's he's been on he's been on the podcast a couple of times and obviously life changer and you're still standing and you're still standing because he doesn't like to stop talking so i'm surprised you're still in the podcast business after working with him well the, the great skill of a podcast host avi and you'll learn this when you when you launch your podcast is you need to listen but but today avi this is your floor, so. Oh, this is great! So I can tell all my hidden secrets on your podcast. But first and foremost, I think what's interesting, obviously, we're talking in in the middle, in the midst of a pandemic, a global pandemic. You're in Toronto, I'm in London. For people who are listening from either of those places and or further afield, just to give you a sense of context. And what's interesting is that you, in 2019, you. Having been a producer and a distributor, you took it upon yourself to directorial debut. You did a short film called Red Balloon. So in during a global pandemic, that's where you choose to do your feature film directorial debut. So we'll get on to the what you what how you went about that in a bit and we'll talk about it. But do you in, in the round, do you want in terms of where you're at now, do you want to just give people a little idea of some of the film titles you're you're, you're working on, you've just finished, and where they are in the process in terms of seeing the light of day as it were yeah so i mean up till now i've produced over 60 feature films in canada that have played in international film festivals all over the world um 
Uh, and I've been a film distributor, actually, August 11th this year will be my 10th year as a distributor with IndyCan Entertainment. Congratulations uh, on that really, decade. Thank you, which has released over 150 films in Canada and over 70 in the United States. Wowza. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, was traveling around the festival circuit with Justin McConnell, who has been on your podcast a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, with a movie called Life Changer. And we were in Busan, South Korea in the middle of a typhoon. And so we were locked up in our uh, hotel room because the hotel wouldn't let anybody go outside for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And we got to talking about, you know, what is our one career regret that we haven't, you know, done. And mine was that I had never directed anything. And so when we got back to Canada after our little festival circuit uh, and had finished Busan, I decided to announce on Facebook that I was interested in directing my first short film and that I was looking for a script. And within 36, 48 hours, I had over a hundred scripts sent to me. Can I ask then, was, was, was director your original ambition that just got lost in the midst of time or was it something you, you always producing. So the urge to direct was something that developed in you as a filmmaker. No, I just thought like, "Hmm," I thought about it. I never directed anything. That's kind of weird. Maybe I should try directing something. I mean, after producing as much content as I have yeah, and, and working with such great directors like Justin and people like Warren Sonoda and Jeremy Lalonde and other people, I felt that I had learned a lot and that I wanted to apply some of what I learned to try to make a short film and see if I would do okay by it. And so I read all these scripts. I found the one that I wanted, which was Red Balloon, and I actually... The moment I read it, I knew that was the only one I wanted to make because I, I was crying reading it. Nine pages of, of brilliance that made me exude the emotions that I want. I want to be able to exude as many emotions after reading a script as I can. And that was it for me. And so I... Well, then, for, 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 the, for the budding screenwriter listening in, Abby, you, you say you, you put a shout out and you got scripts and that was the one that got your attention. Yeah. When you got a shout out, what you, you let people know that you know you wanted the script, so you randomly use social media to attract anyone and I everyone. I just use social media as the, I knew that if I posted that, that I would receive some submissions. Did I re- figure I was going to receive that many that fast? Mm. Um, no. Right. But um, I did. And then I, I literally, I like within a couple of weeks later, I was on, a, on the plane to another festival with Justin, this time to Mexico for Morbido. And I brought the scripts and I read them and um, I picked it, picked the one right while I was in Mexico. And it was the only one that I wanted to make out of all the hundred and some odd scripts that I'd read. So tell, so for the audience's benefit then, Abby, what's the, what would be the short sort of brief synopsis to what Red Balloon is so we can understand what the appeal is? Red Balloon is essentially in a very quick nutshell, uh, the story of a family, especially a a father who's dealing with the fact that his young son has got a significant illness and his his dealing with it. Right. Okay. Nine pages that I spent the next six months with the writer refining those nine pages because I felt, although the script I thought was really, really good, I felt like there was a few things missing that took basically six months to find. And once we found them, then I began raising the funds to make the film. And then we made the film in August uh, 2019. So when, when you were, cause it, like you say, it's your first directorial position you've given yourself. So you're now working 
you've got a different point of view in terms of the filmmaking process to a producer. Yep. Did that feel mentally different? I mean, obviously you've watched, you've worked with directors and writers to help them get to that point you're talking about, but you've really been there to make sure they got there, not necessarily the responsibility of what it turned out like in some senses was still on them rather than you. And obviously when you put the directors out on, you're now the the creative, you're controlling the creative engine as like from the steering wheel now, aren't you? Yeah. And I mean, you know, the producer is there to lift the director into helping them achieve their vision. Mm. Um, whereas I'm sitting in there being lifted by the people that are producing the film with me, by the crew that is working with me, by the cast that's working in front of me. It's a much different experience. Um, it actually made me a better producer directing the short because I'm seeing the director's point of view from a much different position, right? Mm. So how I deal with directors now and how I collaborate with them is much different of a scenario for me now than it was prior to making Red Balloon. Um, but, uh, you know, when I, the first day of the, it was a two day shoot and the first day of filming people would come to me and said, you look very comfortable in, in doing what you're doing. You look like you've been doing it for a long time. I never really, I didn't think about it and actually didn't really, I didn't really think about it at all until like maybe a week after we had finished filming Yeah, where I did feel like, my God, this felt really comfortable. I really liked the process. I really liked the way I, you know, I was communicating with actors in a much different way than me as a producer. Cause I'm not talking to them in those same creative ways that you do as a director. Right. Did you have interest? Did you, did you notice distinct differences in how people dealt with you when they dealt with you as a producer? You like, you're like, center of everybody's attention being a director and when you're a producer they just only want to <coughs> they don't talk to you about the same things that they talk to you as a director for sure okay that's interesting it's much different much much different so from that successful experience you 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 make red balloon and red balloon is where, where's red balloon at the moment then as a short film that's oh, it's still in a few festivals left to play and then i'm gonna release it uh digitally probably in um the spring um maybe late fall, um, early fall, um, on digital platforms, just through my distribution company, just because I want people to see it. Yeah. Um, I've been raising money to, for a local kids, uh, uh, cancer charity, uh, in, in Toronto. Mm -hmm. I've just released the soundtrack, um, which is basically one song that was custom written for the, the movie by a woman named Adeline. Um, and in the first month, it uh, that one song um, played uh, thirteen thousand hits. Wowza! Yeah, you must be proud of that. And that's I'm really proud of that. And then I'm going to be releasing a children's book based on the movie, uh, hopefully in the next month or so. You're a creative whirlwind, Nava. You really are. Well, I mean, look, I, I feel like you know we can talk about this at some point, but I feel like when you make a movie, you have to think about. How, how many different ways can you monetize that movie? Okay. In other words, you know, it's not just making a movie. Can you make a book out of it? Can you make a soundtrack out of it? Can you make merchandise out of it? Like if you look at films like James Bond, for example, they're monetizing their movie 50 million ways. They mm. have advertising companies paying them money to use their product in their movies. They're doing soundtracks. They're doing, you know, they're living off of the, the, the James Bond books. And it goes on and on and on. 
getting to Canada, for example, and I'm sure to some extent in the UK and the United States, not a lot of films, especially indie films, for the most part, aren't taking advantage of finding unique ways to make money off their movie. So your your experience so, of the number of films you've you've produced and distributed, you've you've maybe seen the opportunities that have succeeded and or been missed as a result of not not thinking of these things. Okay. Yeah, and I mean certain not every movie lends itself towards that, but I think some movies lend itself towards that. And and I wanted to raise money for cancer, for kids' cancer. And so I've thought, how can I use this movie and other vehicles to be able to try to raise money for the charity so you know i'm not making any money off of this movie a matter of fact i'm out of pocket money and that's fine because it's it, it i'm doing what i want to do and how i want to do it but i think that as a general rule as a filmmaker i'm i'm at that point now where i want to find different ways to get exposure for the movie because cool. you can't just rely on the exposure of the movie itself so let's let's look at let's look at some feature films then that, that are sort of at the top of your list. So you've got you've got your first feature film that you've directed, which is a family seduction. You've got motherly an elevated thriller that you've produced, and for the vicious and all out balls to the wall horror film that you produced too. Um, mm. do, what, do you want to take in them in that order? Do you want to tell us where you're at with yeah, those? Yeah, so projects? I'll talk. So let's talk about. Uh, for the sake of vicious, which you've seen, um, mm. that's played at Fright Fest and Grim Fest and a whole pile of other festivals that have premiered at Fantasia.
I'm super proud of that movie, directed by Reese Evanesian and uh, Gabriel Carrere. Um, they, it's not their feature film debuts. They've directed many other films previously separately. This is their first collaboration as a co-directors. Mm-hmm. Um, super proud of that film. We made that film for a very, very small amount of money. Um, it's, uh, the trailer received over a million and a half views internationally on the internet. Right. Um, and it exploded, um, review wise, positivity wise, super proud of the film. Raven Banner has been on board since early development of the, of the film. And, um, sold it to multiple territories, including Signature in the UK, uh, Epic in um, the US, um, and so on. And um, we're hoping that the film will come out, will be released, general release in the spring, hopefully, uh, both in the United States, UK, and Canada, and other places. Um, and so that was made in the fall of 2019. Yeah, I was going to say, just just for the, just to give people a sense of because uh, this is a film that I watched and reviewed, so I concluded that for the sake of vicious dazzles with intensity, it never takes its proverbial foot off the audience's throat. The rights and wrongs of it all are thrown out the window as getting to the truth and meeting out rough justice for the rape of someone simply means one more death by the end of the film. The lasting surprise is how anyone survived to tell the tale. And and you said it very eloquently, to be honest. I mean, that is the movie, and um, we're super proud of it. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's the I've never made a violent film in my mm. life, really. That's the first one that I've ever really done. And yeah, I, I remember when we were in the sound mix, and I was watching. You know, the sound is ele- turned up loud, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, to, I had to turn away from the sound guy's screen because the the violence was so off the chart that I couldn't deal with it. Um, and look, I've, you know, I've watched hundreds of cuts, hundreds of cuts, multiple cuts of the movie and on my, on my computer and, and such. And I never twitched once, but you see it with the sound turned up and, and you're in a very dark room um, that you kind of feel like you're by yourself and you watch this movie. It, it scared the shit out of me. It's got, it's got the sort of, it, 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 it had for, for, for sort of a, a film that people might know in the more mainstream sense. It's got it's got echoes of Prisoners, you know, Daniel Villeneuve's film from 2013. Or it, it, it wasn't. It was this wasn't as big, but Big Bad Wolves was, was um, Quentin Tarantino's favorite film of of 2013 when that came out. You know, that idea of using horror to tell a kind of out of control morality tale is very effective, isn't it? It is, and 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 I think we did it really, really well. And so I'm super proud of it. And from that film. Mm-hmm. We then, um, I may started shooting a movie called Motherly. It used to be called Daughters, mm-hmm. directed by a gentleman named Craig David Wallace, who did a, a show called Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. Okay. And um, he did the first season of Slasher as well. And um, it's an elevated thriller starring Laura Burke, who was the lead in For the Sake of Vicious, and she was also the lead in Life Changer. It also stars Colin Paradine and Nick Smith, who were also in... Uh, for the sake of vicious, and so we just finished that movie a week ago, and it's, we're just gearing up to deliver the the final elements to Raven Banner, who's going to start selling the film, and we're going to submit to the various film festivals like Fantasia and Fright Fest and Grimfest and things like that. Very proud of that movie. We made we shot that starting the beginning of March, mm-hmm. and we shot we we stopped filming on the nineteenth. One we had one day left, but we stopped because of the pandemic. 
That must have been and cruel. Case, what's that? That must have been cruel. One day left to shoot. One day, yeah. We just felt it was the right thing to do. We could have stayed out. We were shooting. We were shooting in a outside of Toronto, about two hours away, in a, on a farm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we, it was just us. And we felt actually more safer there than we did coming back to Toronto. But we felt for the that because we were about the city was about to go into lockdown um, a day later, we said, you know what, we just want everybody to get home to be safe, be with their families and and so on. That we will stop this. We only had one day left. The day was a very easy day to do, mm. and that we could pick that up later. So we went in lockdown. And we came back out at the beginning of August and we shot the one day left. We didn't go back to the farm. We basically shot it in a studio because it was only interior, some interior pickup truck shots yeah. of a guy, of, of, of one of our characters on the, the walkie uh, on the police radio and some reaction stuff. And that's, and a couple of insert shots. So that's all we had left to do. So we shot that. And, and again, while, we're in lockdown. We're trying desperately to edit this movie, which is difficult when the editor and the director can't be in the same room together. So that proved to be very challenging. Um, drives being exchanged back and forth so the director can see stuff on his computer. And, you know, because Zoom, trying to do Zoom editing has just got its challenges and things. So you had people who were, in, so you had people working together who were in the same city, but, they had, yeah. but they couldn't be in the same room together because of COVID restrictions. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So okay. we basically edited the film from the editor being at his house and the director being at his house. And that took much longer to edit than we had obviously planned on, but it is what it is. Like can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so, the, and then we had the same problem once we went to the sound mix, because of course the director can't go to the sound studio to do the mix with the sound guy because we're still we're, we're we're still in lockdown or in a variation of lockdown it, it and and you know the 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 director has two young children that he had to stay home with to uh, online school and things like that like it just became problematic so that the sound uh, design took longer because of COVID as well. Can I ask you so, then, as part obviously yeah. for the filmmaker listening in who might be faced with a finished film, they've got to get into post production, and they were figuring that maybe we'd be out of this by now, but we're not. Yeah. What are some of the lessons learned that you could share in terms of that kind of remote working on an edit, where usually, obviously, you just have people sat in an edit suite? Well, I mean, you know, we didn't have because we were an indie show, we didn't have the finances to use some of the tools that are available to you now. There's a, a program that you can use on the internet called Evercast, um, or you can use Frame.io for your editing, um, which I just used on the film that I uh, directed yeah. uh, for Mar Vista called uh, A Family Seduction. Basically, we use those tools. So I'm still here. My editor is at his place, but we're able to do changes on the fly while I'm online with him. Okay, okay. We didn't have that. We didn't have that kind of tool accessible to us because of budgetary constraints. Got you. Got so you. Um, there are tools now. Is does it make things easier a little bit? But look, the ability for a director to go into a room with his editor, his or her editor, and 
have these fluid conversations while they're sitting side by side, watching the picture and feeling the scenes out. Mm-hmm. You can't do that digitally online. You just can't. And um, it, it's a slow process. It's frustrating um, being online and not being able to go into your editor's um, edit suite and, and just talk it out and figure it out and try unique things that you can't necessarily easy try when you're editing online. What, what, does, what does that process do for the producer? Do you, do you end up sort of... Well, you worrying- better hope that you have the money to deal with I was going to say, do you end up do you end up thinking too much about time and less about as, as much? Well, as with you... us, like everybody was on a flat, so the editor knew, and like there's not like anything else going on while this yeah, pandemic yeah, yeah, is. Yeah. So he was he was fine with the cards we were dealt, and um, and it was hard. I mean, you know, right after we delivered the movie, our editor lost his father because due to COVID. And um, which was tragic, and and I feel so bad for him and his family. But you know, you're going through all these things that going on around you while you're trying to focus on making a movie, and it's really hard. A director, you know, uh, has got two young kids being homeschooled. Um, He's not able to cut the film the way he wants, or Sam makes the film the way he wants. You know, my heart you know, was very sad for him because he couldn't do it the way that we're all used to doing. Right. Did you have to, did you have to sort of instigate any, any processes to make sure, forget the technical side of it, but more the personable side of it, the relation, you know, you know, what's going on, you know, how people feel, they know how you feel, you know, keeping each other in the loop and making sure you're all on the same page. Yeah, I mean, we tried to do that, but I mean, you know, emotions are high because of anxieties, uh, depression, like we all face. So mood swings because we're all locked up and we can't go anywhere. We can't socialize with anybody. We can't, can't do anything. So, you know, your emotions are, are playing tricks on you all the time, especially like as a, a, when you're looking and trying to focus on your film, things that, you know, would come second nature to you or maybe be a lot more fluid in your idea dealing when you're looking at a film isn't quick to come when you've got all these extenuating circumstances happening around. I can't imagine, because if I think about it on a really simple level, you know, in normal times, if I'm sat at home, if I'm at home and I go, darn it, I've run out of onions, I'll just nip out and get some onions. That suddenly becomes an operation just to get some onions. So I can't imagine what it's like when you're juggling an editor, a director, a producer, you know, investors are, are wondering what's going it's, on. It's super challenging. And then, so we're going through that and then, a company that I had produced uh, a movie for in the late 2019 hmm. said they said, okay, well, after we'd done, done that show, which was February, March, 2020, they said, look, uh, once this pandemic is over, we want to do some more films and we'd like you to produce them with us. And I said, great, I'm in. And of course, you know, pandemic, so we're not doing any. And then um, I said, they said, oh, we heard you did a directed a short film. I said, yeah, would you mind sharing it with us? I said, sure. Thinking nothing of it. So I shared it with them and they came back and they said, wow, that's really great. It, the, you know, the way you've told that story is like, you know, we need a director like that for some of our project. Would you consider directing one of these movies for us? And I said, absolutely. So 
they were starting probably in August, September, they were starting, you know, things had lightened up a little bit. So we were, we were starting to shoot shows again, obviously on, uh, you know, testing PPE, social distancing, all of So, so let's just, just, just for the sake, for anyone listening to this five years from now, we're talking August, 2020, September, 2020. Yeah. So they all start doing shows and, you know, they're testing their cast and crew on the shows with proper COVID tests. They're doing social distancing, PPE, all the th- protocols, like 25 pages were the mm. protocols, which many, m- most of these shows are doing. And they said, well, we have a show slated for November uh, to shoot and we'd like you to produce it. Would you also direct it? And I said, let me have a look at the script, which I did. I said, absolutely. The show is called The Family Seduction. We are, um, we shot at the beginning of November till around the 20th of November. Um, we picture locked the movie December 23rd and we're going to be finished the movie entirely at the end of February. Fantastic. Congratulations so, all round. Thank you. And again, it was a process, right? Of, mm. of experience. I mean, I was a producer on it, so I had to worry about all the producer related stuff. But um, as a director, I you know, was fortunate enough to be surrounded by probably one of the best crews I've ever worked with. Um, some of them worked on Red Balloon with me. The cinematographer did Red Balloon, did this movie with me. Um, the AD that I worked with, um, uh, Lauren Vesterdahl, she was, I'd never worked with her. I would go to war with her anytime. Like the, that's part of being a good director is surrounding yourself. And even as a producer, it's, it's surrounding yourself with the best, most talented crew and cast you can get your hands on. Mm. because they'll all make you look good and 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 you have to leave them be as good as they are in other words let them be the best production designer in the world let them be the best first ad in the world let them be the best cinematographer in the world let them be the best sound recorders in the world don't micromanage give them space to let them fly and if Mm. you do that you will be successful and i've learned that over the 25 years that i've been doing this that I hire the people that I know that can fly without help from anybody. And they all killed it. Now, I know obviously we're talking about film and, 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 and we're going to focus on that. And I'm no, I'm no doubt that other industries have equally been innovative and adapt and adapted to the new circumstances. But I think, I do think, and it's a repeated thing that's come up in interviews since the lockdown, you know, the nature of filmmaking starts with problem solving from the very beginning. So throwing a pandemic at it is, you know, as inconvenient and as unnecessary as you want it, as it feels, it becomes another problem for people who are adept at problem solving to solve, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, being making films is all about problem solving. That's all you're doing all day long for however number of shoot days you have. Yeah. Um, and the most more prepared you can be before you actually start filming, the better. And I don't think a lot of filmmakers spend enough time prepping their films so that they've they've tried to cover off as many bases as they can before they start shooting. I've been on many, many films where you're constantly putting out fires the entire shoot. Mm. Um, I'd prefer to keep those fires down to a small, dull roar if possible, <laughs> because then it allows you the flexibility to go with the punches as like bad weather or whatever the case may be. But if you're also dealing with a whole pile of other things, you can't, you can never get your, your legs, so to speak. You yeah. know what I mean? You're always running to a standstill. You're never actually going forward. Yeah. So a family seduction is on its way to being finished and available. Um, 
it's been a hell of a year. So let's let, let's let's look back. You've 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 just recently put out a blog, and we'll put a link in the show notes so people can have a read of it, which is more of a kind of your view of the world based on obviously your experiences and you looking forward as to maybe what makes sense for the for the for the indie filmmaker as we uh, as we try and stumble our way through what is the film market. And yeah. you've mentioned Raven Banner a couple of times now, and obviously Motherly's yeah. Elevated Thriller for the Vicious is a horror film. And both those films play into the um, the narrative of what you talk about in your blog, which is developing a film with a sales agent, for starters. And it's interesting that I met you in 2015, and I didn't yeah. realise that was where you began to sort of have your kind of, your new epiphany, I suppose, if, for want of a better expression, about what you needed to do to get films made or what films would get. I think it's, I guess you were solving the problem of what films get made and then what are, what become something that might become profitable. And you began to be attracted to the horror genre and the sci-fi genre. Well, I mean, I, look, I've been, I was um, a fan, uh, you know, in, be, in being friends with um, Justin McConnell, mm. who's deeply entrenched in the genre world um and we have numerous projects in development as a matter of fact he has a new film out which i encourage all those uh, in, um people interested in getting into the film industry or in the film industry in the early stages to watch his documentary um which arrow is actually releasing in the uk um it's called clapboard jungle film is storytelling and we love a good story making movies is beautiful Prepping them, raising the money, selling them is horrible. I wanted to make films since I was very young, but who was I? And what chance do I really have? Okay, here it goes. I grew up dreaming of when I might get the big break. That moment I made a film that would break into the public consciousness in a way that my career would be set. This is the hardest business, all aspects of this. I think a lot of filmmakers think, just get the golden ticket, and then you're making movies, and that's not what it is. I have to prove myself a lot harder. The doors to getting your work seen are wide open now. The ability to make money off your work is what's much more difficult. All these people are working alongside me as a team to recognize one vision that came out of here. I'm doing this. be successful as a filmmaker you have to be a fucking masochist you know and, and and luck plays a large part if you are entering this business in order to be a rich or famous you're in the wrong place they always take longer than anyone planned it's an organic thing filmmaking and you you can't hold on to your original plan too tightly you can make a wonderful film and never it never gets seen you really need people to believe in your project time keeps passing and hope keeps going up and down like a roller coaster I used to look at life where I would think this is the year for me this is the year where I'm gonna break out and my career is gonna explode as a filmmaker Swimming is all there ever is. Forward to whatever that brings. You may fuck up along the way, you may never reach the top of the business, but as long as you keep trying, keep learning, keep striving, it has to be enough. You know, there's hope out there. You just gotta work and it'll pay off. I think there's a lot of stories out there that haven't had the voice in the past. Film and telling a story reminds us who we are. And that's never going away. I can echo your uh, recommendation. It is a phenomenal piece of work, and it really gets under the 
under the skin of what it is to be an indie filmmaker. Yeah. So, you know, I've been developing a bunch of content with him. And so we made Life Changer, which is the first genre movie I've ever produced. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, it was interesting traveling around to numerous film festivals with Justin and watching what the audiences are like at those festivals versus going to the standard fair festivals that I had been going to. And watching the audiences, they're rabid. They love the content. They, you know, I had such a good time, met so many great people. Like at Brightfest alone, I mean, I made so many new friends that I'm still in touch with today. At that festival. You were even lucky enough to have dinner with me a couple of times, I think. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, but they they're they're totally engaged. And you want as a filmmaker to people go to see your film and get so wound up and into your film. You don't see that when you go to many of these film festivals with they're not genre films, and you know, people are sitting all perfectly nicely sitting in their seats and their hands on their hand rests and they're sitting all prim and proper and nobody says anything until the end of the film and then they go <laughs> it's like come on whereas you go to the fright fest or grim fest or fantasia and people are screaming at the screen and yelling and whoa and all this stuff they're and they're totally engaged and then they come outside into the main areas after the theater doors open and the rush of people comes down and everybody's talking about it in in such a jazzed way and i went oh my god like this is this is like a home for me even though i don't typically go out of my way to go watch genre movies because i get scared too easily and stuff and i have bad dreams and all this stuff the the fact that i watch people being so engaged and passionate about the content yeah makes me want to go make more of that in effect, it's it's still a, it, it, as much as obviously there's there's um there's a financial incentive for everybody who wants to invest in movies and invest their time, but actually there is an emotional response that you enjoy and that you want to repeat that you've you've witnessed and and that makes that spurs you on as much. Well, for me, I, like I watched a movie this morning, a documentary, and I cried five times watching this movie. Like I want to feel. I need as a filmmaker, I need to feel. As a viewer, I need to feel. I don't want to go watch a movie if I don't feel a, 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 an array of emotions. I need that. I, that makes me know that I've seen a good film. Films that I just walk out and I feel nothing, it's just like, that was a waste of an hour and a half or two hours. Like, you know, um, how do you know when you make a good film when people spend an hour or two hours talking about it after they've watched it? That's the best form of publicity you'll ever have for your movie is that conversation. So in that sense, so that's, that's the outcome, but obviously that everything start, starts at the beginning with a screenplay or maybe mm -hmm. a, a, a treatment or whatever, but, and you're, you're then working with the likes of Raven's Banner then to in unison. Cause that you're saying to them, okay, here's, here's what we've got. How does that play in terms of your view of the genre marketplace? Yeah, like I may think this is the greatest <clears throat> thing since sliced bread, but I showed to Raymond, well, we can't sell this. Okay, well, then I'll go find something else. Like I need my sales company to be engaged and, and, and believe that they can do something with this film, that it'll see the inside of many film festivals, that it'll sell to many territories and things like that. There's no point in making a movie if nobody's going to see it. It's interesting, and I think for some people it might feel like there's, there's a dispiriting point there because it's almost like saying – 
I go with an idea and they go, well, you know, this won't sell. Now you've got a choice there, haven't you? You've got like, this isn't a, this isn't a good idea to take into the marketplace or I love it so much I'm not bothered, but then don't be disappointed when it turns out that the market doesn't want it. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously going to be, there's always exceptions to prove any rule, but Ravens Banner aren't in the habit of chopping their nose off to spite the face just to not make a movie, are they? they they're looking at- Right, but remember too, how many precious filmmakers there are out there hmm. that believe that their stuff is like, and they're insulted if a distribution company or sales company turn their film down. Mm. Like I, I've seen it. I've been at markets like Cannes or Berlin and watched filmmakers be irritated by the fact that a sales company or distributor doesn't want to represent their film. Like just because you think it's good doesn't mean that it's good. No. And, and let's be honest, as far as investment goes, emotional and financial, if you, if you're having a conversation with someone about essentially what's a one sheet and idea and they go, well, you know, but you find somebody else that goes, no, we're really excited about that. That's where you go. But if you don't get, if you get three, four, five, six, seven, well, it doesn't really, there's no, nobody's buying that kind of film. Nobody watched. You have to believe that maybe you've not got a good idea. And, and at that point, you've got a chance to go back and create something different, haven't you? Rather than. Well, yeah, but I mean, oh, but Avi, you know, you know how many script writing awards I've won with this script at all these script festivals? <laughs> and I went. And I go, and then I go, okay, well, I'll read it. And then you read it and it's got more holes than Swiss cheese. I mean, and then you go to the, the writer and you go, well, I mean, there's this problem and there's this problem. Well, if there was those problems in that, in my script, why would I win all these awards? And I go, I, I go, don't, why are you asking me that question? Why don't you ask them the question? The, the, the other half of the advice I think that you're offering in your blog is, is that, and it's, and it's to do with choices. Um, in in your blog, you're you're saying okay, there is there is a marketplace for these kind of high concept, interesting, unique points of view horror films. It's not just about it's a horror film; it will sell because there are mm-hmm. we can we can both go and scroll through Amazon Prime right now and mm-hmm. and find a load of anonymous horror films that no one's going to pay too attention to give right. two thoughts to. So right. it's still about creating interesting work, but equally. I was interested to read what you were saying about um, about comedies and about drama. Um, so your, your observation there is that you're you're constrained not just by the challenge of getting financing, but if you're not attracting a stellar cast relative to that budget you're trying to make the film for, then also forget about it in that sense. So the idea might be fantastic, but if the cast isn't going to sell it, comedy is a much bigger deal. The thing is about genre is it doesn't matter who's in it. It matters the concept and the execution. Hmm. Okay. In, in drama, you don't have that ability. It's all dependent on yes, concept execution, but who's in it Hmm. because what separates you from everybody else in a drama or in a comedy. And look at, I've, I've watched as a distributor, I've watched hundreds of comedies. Oh, you'll find this the funniest movie you've ever seen. You're going to want to represent it. And I look at, I used to do stand up comedy for years. I can tell you mo- many movies that I've watched that people said I'd be like on my ass laughing my head off, not one snicker. So I go, you know, like comedy is hard. You have to be, as a comedy director, you have to know those beats. Your cinematographer also has to be very familiar with shooting comedy. They have to, their camera has to land on that beat. 
And many people can't execute that. Mm. And not only that, but comedians, you have to know as a comedian how to deliver the line so that it's funny. You can say a funny line, but if you don't deliver it properly, it becomes not a funny line anymore. Right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so the, the execution is massive in comedies. And if you go to the market and you've been to Cannes with me and you've been to Berlin with me, you walk the market walls. How many of them have actually posters of comedies on their walls? Very few. Mm. And the dramatic ones are mostly foreign. Yeah. And, right? the, dram and the dramatic ones have got what you would call a kind of festival narrative, haven't they? They, they, they get launched. It'll go, this celebrated director from Poland yeah, or South Korea is making a new movie or Mike Lee's making yeah, a new movie. Exactly. But, you know, they're not selling like bazillions of dollars. And if they are, it's because they have big casting. You know, so um, I, you know, uh, the next film I hope to make will be a drama. It's going to be privately invested. It's, a, it's probably one of the best scripts I've ever read in, in the 25 years of me making movies. And I'm trying to raise the money right now to shoot it hopefully this fall. So is that, does that mean you're now under pressure to get yourself a cast that will sell that investment in that film? Uh, well, the cast will be Canadian. They'll be from here because the budget is too low. Okay. But, but I have no visions of grandeur that I'm going to make money on this film. I want to make the movie because it's a piece of art. Okay. It is, the script is absolutely amazing. The cast that I want to do this movie with me that live here is, we did a table read during COVID. Seven, I think it was like 12 people on the call. By the end of the call, everybody was crying. Wow. Like powerful actors that have been an actor for over 50 years who said they've never cried at a table read were crying at the reading of this script. Like that's when you know you have something super special that you got to do whatever you can, you have to do to make that movie. I was looking at your blog, I sort of ex extrapolated, starts with a script, great idea, great script, attract a director, which will hopefully attract you the best cast possible. And then if you attract, if you attract all of those things, you're going to attract money and you're going to attract an audience. Like it's, it's that simple. It does sound very simple, Avi, but it does, it appears to not be as simple as it sounds. The problem is, is that you, in order to get to that good script, it has to start with a great idea. And many people think that their script has a great idea within it, and they don't. Okay. And you can't have a great script without a great idea. Like, tell me, Stuart, when was the last time you saw a great movie done with a bad about a bad idea? No, no, you cannot make a good film with a bad script. You can't make a, a good script with a bad idea. I guess you can, but you definitely you can you can make a bad film with a good script because you obviously you can you can execute. Well, it. Yeah, you can, but I mean, I've never seen anybody take a bad idea and make a good movie out of it. You know what I mean? Crystal ball gazing, just in a kind of macro sense, less about what you're doing yourself. I think with there's a you're obviously a busy man. You've got a lot of experience. So with bringing that together in your mind and looking at the impact of what COVID has had on our industry, what mm -hmm. what. What changes are you are you thinking you might see in in the world of filmmaking? Is are we going to be seeing any independent films in cinemas in in the next five years? Are we? Well, I think seeing any movies in cinemas, period, is going to be challenging because, I mean, like me as a moviegoer, I'm scared to hell to go into the side of a movie theater. Okay. Um, 
I think a lot of movie theaters, independents are closing and they'll never be able to reopen because they won't have the money to be able to reopen. I think the chains will exist, mm. but I'm not completely convinced that most of the <clears throat> independents will be able to survive. I, you know, it, it, it doesn't surprise me, but it angers me how many pandemic movies are being made during the pandemic about the pandemic. Yeah. Um, as a filmmaker, why would I want to see a movie about the hell that I'm going through? Yes. With my, I agree right? with you completely. And, and for people to take advantage of that and think that we are into something like that is kind of shocking to me, but not surprising, I mm. guess. Um, I think we need to, as a community, concentrate and focus more on better scripts. I think a lot of indie filmmakers are too much in a hurry that they get this idea, they want to make it as fast as possible. They don't spend enough time developing their script. That script should never be made until it's ready to be made. And that's not the filmmaker's decision, to be honest. That's getting proper script coverage on your script by multiple people, by having your producing team, maybe a sales company or hopefully a sales company involved that can tell you whether or not your script is ready to start putting the other pieces together to make the movie. Avi, as, uh, for, for something like for the yeah. Vicious, which obviously I know. So well, for, for the sake of Vicious. So Reese and Gabe came to me probably a year or so prior to us making the movie. And they yeah. said, we've got the script. They saw Life Changer. Uh, we saw they saw it at um, Toronto After Dark, and we met up in the in the atrium afterwards. And they congratulated Justin and I on the movie, and they said we have a script that we we've written. We'd like you to take a look at it, and if you like it, we'd love for you to produce it for us. I said okay, fine. They showed it to me, and I read it, and I and I already knew that Raven Banner was interested in it because they they work with these guys a lot yeah, yeah, quite yeah. often, and. Um, and uh, Raven Banner had suggested that they talk to me as well. And so I read it and I went, this is a really great idea, but it needs a lot of work. Really? Like, we think it's ready to go. No. And so it took a bunch of convincing and we ended up workshopping that script for another year before we all agreed. And that's them, me, Raven Banner that was ready to go get money and go get made. And you, if you were to ask them now whether or not this is a much better script than what they originally had, they will tell you it was worth the wait. So, so materially, then, obviously, this is—I mean, for the listener who's, ma who's maybe not seen it yet, this is a film that ostensibly is a kind of assault on Precinct Thirteen. It's a people arriving at a single location, and it just gets more and more claustrophobic and more and more violent as the more people that arrive. So. Essentially, there's there's not a lot of variables in terms of location in this film. Is more bodies than yeah. establishing stories. So, what were some of the seismic changes that that twelve months allowed the script to take to become the film? Well, the backstory of why the um, Chris, the lead male in this, yeah. why he was doing what he was doing. I, I don't want to get too much because I don't want to give the film away. But a lot of the backstory had to be worked out. Um, the impetus of of why the, the the siege on the house happens in, in 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 the way that it does and what the ultimate result of the siege, what what's the end result of it all, right? Um, and when people see the film, they'll understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is a, a, a story that's being told and what, what seems to have gotten missed in some of the reviews and 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 such is that there is a story there that people have just 
decided to not pay attention to because of the extreme violence that happens in this movie and the action that they've just sort of pushed away the storytelling and just focused on the, the, the utter chaos that goes on for 90 minutes. No, no, um, no. It has, it's, it does. A, it has a definite, has a rhyme and a reason that you can relate to. It does, but it's shocking how many people actually have missed that. Like it is, it's really shocking. Like I've, I've read every review and it's all, there's so many people that have just said, but there's no real, they've just left the storytelling to, to just do this action. Well, no, we didn't because mm. the reason why all of this is happening is because of the story. So, so when you're, you're, so this is your reaction to the screenplay. So then thinking of some, a, a collaborator like Raven's Banner in that process, what's their role in that 12 months of work? Well, they things? gave us notes like okay, all okay. the way. Yeah. And then when we started editing, we gave them the cuts of the film and they gave us heavy criticism and, and uh, commentary. And their, See, their, 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 their commentary on the script side and then, then on the final movie side, like every cut that we did, we showed them, we shared it with them. We wanted their feedback. We wanted their input. We wanted, and look, they, we discovered in the middle of the edit that we needed to go out and shoot another two more scenes to help with the storytelling. And I'm not going to tell you right now which ones they are. I can tell you off air. Just to catch up on what you're saying here, Avi, because I think it's important for a filmmaker listening in, because what you didn't do is find a filmmaker, raise the finance, make a movie, and then come back to the market and go, hey, market, I've made this film. What mm-hmm. happened is that the collaborators that were working on the film were engaged with it at different stages. So it's almost like a, a snake shedding skin, isn't it? It sort of starts. Well, with- it's, it's like it's like a studio movie because the studio happens to be Raven, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With my company, and we developed, co-developed it to then make it and then push it out. Any kind of creative endeavor can guarantee nothing. But yeah. if you allow people to be involved to shape it into something yeah. that they understand as successful. And obviously you can yeah. you can debate and discuss this. It's not about being told what to do, is it? No. No, but look, their input's invaluable. They know the marketplace. They know what the buyers want. They know what the festivals want. They know all that stuff. And they never stood in our way of trying of, of the what we were trying to do. We we were collaborators. We're friends. We're family and we 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 feed off of one another's input. It's it's invaluable, I can tell you. And um and so because of that collaboration, I mean, I have multiple, multiple projects in, in with them that if the, if I can raise the money that they're going to happen. Um, well, I think, I think to- just, just not to, I mean, not to undermine your, all, all the years of experience that you, you represent as well in all this, but, but from what I'm getting here, one of the best pieces of advice that I could, I, I'd, I'd like to sort of resonate out of this is that filmmakers with a project would be wise to take their developmental documents to a can to a Berlinale and meet with sales and distribution people and tell them about what they plan to do and see what reaction they get to that, that notion. And then obviously if you get the positive reaction and you've already written a screenplay then they might go, they'll read that. And then they'll, you'll either, again, that, that, that feedback loop will well, either think, go more please, or this isn't right. You need to do this, this, and this. Well, or, I think that, most filmmakers who are, happen to be writers, directors need to find themselves a producer who has the relationships that, that, like what I have, to then be able to go to a sales company like Raven Banner or whoever the sales company is or distribution company and, and, and get that process going. Not every distribution company or sales company is going to want to 
talk to every single of course no producer. and i think that yeah but, but, right? but the relationship is is something that you can't rush can you so you no. you you can start off with the tentative I've been developing this relationship with raven banner since 2015 when they took my first the first film they ever took of mine which was a movie called prisoner x which is a science fiction movie mm. that they took for sales was the first movie that i did with them and since then i've done um, four or five films with them and um, have a bunch of more that we're, we've got slated that we're hopefully going to do together. Um, I'm de developing, I have like 20 projects in development right now, most of which are somewhat attached to Raven Banner. Um, you know, uh, you have to develop a slate of films because you can't just have one project that you're working on and, oh my God, I'm going to focus all my energy in this project and it's going to get made. But what if it doesn't get made, right? So I have 20 that I'm juggling that are all in various stages of development. And, you know, because then I can have one to two a year, one to three a year that I can make and, and develop and, and produce. And then they play the festival circuit and then the next crop comes in and the next crop comes in. You, on, you want to be constantly pushing out good content. Now, I refuse to make bad content and I will not make bad content. And I'm proud of every single movie that I've done. But if the script is lousy, it ain't going to get made. Period. Well, look. Let's let's um let's let's recap them, um, from your from you yourself, in in sort of current current output, we've got, for the sake of the vicious, um, we've got motherly the elevated thriller, which is completed, and it's hopefully I'll be able to see that at fright fest with other people and places like that. Yep. And then you've got. Red Balloon, the short movie, which is still in festivals, if people spot that. And you've got... Yeah, it'll come out in digital this year, probably summer, fall. And you're releasing an adaptation of that as a book, a children's yep. book. The, the yep. children's book's going to be called Red Balloon, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's the charity that you're raising money for? It's for a charity called Marnie's Studio, which is a, a, like a, a studio that the... Uh, arts community in Toronto uh, raised a bunch of money to put into sick kids hospital mm -hmm. so that parents and their kids can uh, play instruments in there and do musicals and do all kinds of arts activities in this little section of the building that uh, they've turned into like a studio. Okay. And so uh, I'm raising money for that charity. Fantastic. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. And finally, you've got your directorial feature debut. Uh, Family Seduction, which is going to be, uh, which was made, uh, financed and being sold and distributed by Mar Vista Entertainment from the U.S. And they'll be starting to sell it at various markets, uh, probably this spring. Um, and hopefully it'll come out on television or theaters or whatever uh, later this year. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure finally getting a chance to do this with you.